Good morning. It's good to um, be with all of you. I've had a chance to meet you. My name's, um, my name's Joe, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, hopefully you're uh, nice and relaxed. Uh, anyway, did, did you actually do the breathing exercise as it was up there, or did you just kind of just let it go? It's a good thing to do. Um, if you were just watching, I encourage you uh, next week to participate. I think we'll be showing the same video. And uh, um, today we're kicking off a new series called uh, Breath of God. And uh, we're going to spend some time looking at a couple of passages that talk about um, the breath of God. Breath, uh, the word for breath in, in Hebrew is actually uh, kind of interesting and, and helpful maybe for some context. Uh, uh, one of the Hebrew words for breath, uh, not the only one, but one of them, um, means not only breath, but it can mean uh, wind and it can mean spirit. And so you translate it based on the context. Um, and so it's one of these, uh, is, is found throughout um, uh, uh, the Old Testament and sometimes translated as wind and sometimes as spirit and sometimes as breath. Um, what's really great, Alyssa's preaching next week. In that passage, it uses um, the same word in multiple different ways. Today, we're going to look at one of the other passages. Um, we're going to look at two in the Old Testament, two in the New Testament. So this is where we're headed. I don't want to surprise anyone. So here, this is where we're headed. Um, we're going to spend today looking at the breath of God at creation, the breath of God at creation. One of the things that's essential to the breath of God um, is in all of these passages that we're going to look at is the breath of God animates, brings to life something that would otherwise be lifeless. So it animates or brings to life what would otherwise be lifeless. Now, that's not the only role of the breath of God. I decided not to do a sermon on Isaiah, and in Isaiah, the breath of God is compared to sulfur, and it's very, like, destructive. But, you know, you can read that on your own, very uh, inspiring passage. Um, But uh, we're going to look at um, where the breath of God brings to life in creation, in Genesis 2. We're going to do that today. Next week, we're going to look at Valley of the Dry Bones. It's a story of um, this valley of dry bones, and uh, interesting how that works, and how the breath of God and the wind of God and all this sort of stuff raises these bodies back to life. And then we'll look at uh, a very uh, often quoted but misunderstood passage where it says that Scripture is God-breathed. So we're actually going to look at that passage. What does it mean for Scripture to be God-breathed, specifically in light of God's breath throughout the rest of Scripture, right? So we're going to take some time and reflect on that. And then the finally, John 20, Jesus to his disciples breathes on them, kind of fulfilling Jesus being God in the flesh. And we're going to look at John 20, breathes on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at these four passages. And uh, today we're going to really just look at Genesis 2. We're going to spend some time with it. Um, but as we move forward, we'll be reflecting back on these, these passages and kind of interpreting God's breath, the breath of God, in light of what we're reading um, even today. So um, we're going to start by looking at the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible or smartphone, you can pull that out. And we're going to start in chapter 2. And as you do that, let me give you some context. The book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. That's what Genesis means. It's beginning or origin. Um, And really, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are trying to answer a really simple yet profound question. Very simple but profound question, and the question is this. This is, this is what I'm going to suggest to you. The question is, how did we get here? How did we get here? Um, now, when people ask this question, how did we get here, uh, oftentimes Christians are usually satisfied by looking at these passages and answering it in a very um, cold, matter-of-fact sort of way. So how did we get here? Well, God created the world in seven days, and God created Adam and Eve, and like this is this is our origin story. It's matter of fact, this is what happened. Um, now, other Christians would say that you know it was millions of years, and God used evolution. So there's diversity. There's diversity of thought around that. But either way, I, I want to suggest that 
That's not really the question I think Genesis is trying to answer. Um, and, and, if, and if that's how you answer it, you're really kind of missing the point of some of these passages. When we ask, how did we get here? I'm not saying, how did it happen historically, you know, to bring us to today, although that can be helpful. I think what, what we're really asking is, is, is it's is just a slightly different tone, different inflection. It's the question, what happened? Do you know what I mean? Like, why is the world the way that it is? Think about it like this. Imagine, imagine you're married. Maybe you're married. I'm married. Um, and after years of being married, your marriage uh, just starts falling apart. And you've grown apart, and, and you've spent more time arguing than you spend in love, and you've grown hard towards each other, and you yell at each other, and you're mad at each other, and you're just mad all the time. And you're miserable, and you both know it. You're like, this marriage isn't working. But in a moment of clarity, your partner asks you with a spirit of brokenness and just enough timidity to break your heart, and she says, how did we get here? How did we end up like this? Now, if they ask that, and you respond by saying, well, seven years ago, I asked you to be my wife, and then we got engaged, and then we got... Do you feel like, is that the question she's asking? No, that's not the question she's asking. She wants to know, like, what happened? She wants to know what happened that, that made all of this so dang hard, that made all of this fall apart. What's going on in your, your relationship and in your marriage and in the world that just, this world just seems to keep falling apart? How did we get here? Like, why isn't this working the way that it should? I want to suggest to you that I think that's the question that God primarily is trying to answer in Genesis 1 through 11. Whether you view it as literal or metaphorical, I think that's the question that God's trying to answer. What happened to move us from paradise to paradise lost? How did the world become the kind of world that it is? Because the one thing that all humans agree on, doesn't matter the culture or the time, all humans, it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not, all humans agree on one thing. This world is not quite what it should be. It's just everyone agrees to that. Like there's something, there's something off. Now, this question, how did the world become the kind of world that it is, it, it covers, it's an umbrella for a lot of questions. People might ask, why is there suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why are there natural disasters? Why are people so mean? Why are people so mean? Why? And why does it feel like sometimes the world and our relationships and everything just seems to fall apart? All of these questions, these kind of questions can be summarized in this one simple question. Why is the world the kind of world that it is? And how did we get here? That's the question that we're going to uh, begin to uncover in Genesis 2. But you really have to lead Genesis uh, 1 through 11. You get to the end of Genesis 11, right before Abraham enters the story, and you get to the end of it, and then you're like, oh, yeah, that's the world I'm familiar with. But all of these different things happen that bring you to that place where we're like, okay, now I'm, now I'm tracking. So today, um, if you are new with us today, we often spend time in Scripture. We, we, we walk through, not all the time, but often we'll walk through Scripture verse by verse. We're going to do that today. Um, we're going to be in Genesis, like I said. We're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 4. So I encourage you to follow along. It'll be on the screen, but I encourage you to, if you have a Bible, pull that out or on your phone. And I also encourage you, maybe there'll be, maybe, I don't know, there'll be something I say that you want to remember, and I encourage you to write that down. Um, and so we're going to look at starting with verse 4, and uh, uh, here's what it says. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth, when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So, so we start with just the cold, hard facts, nothing special here. This is earth, and it's lifeless. It's just God and a lifeless world, just 
you know, nothing, nothing going on there. Uh, there wasn't any living thing. There wasn't plants. There weren't animals. Um, just a lifeless world. And there weren't plants yet for, for a reason. Next verse. Now, no shrub yet had appeared on the earth, and no plant had sprung up. He said, plants, weren't, plants aren't here yet, and here's why. It gives two reasons. One, for the Lord had not yet sent rain on the earth. That makes sense. You need water for plants, okay? This is welcome to biology class and, you know, environmental science. You just need water for plants. He said, well, so I'm going to, you know, we need water. But then he says something interesting, and there was no one to work the ground. It's like God had this picture of what the world could be, and he says, well, I'm not going to have plants unless I have someone who can turn it into a garden. Isn't that interesting? He's like, I'm not going to just let plants grow wild and do their own thing. Like, I'm going to wait to have plants until, I one, they need water. But two, they're going to need some people to work in it and make it into something bigger and better than it could be on its own. So one living thing, this is what we're introduced into this topic, one living thing needs another living thing for it to be healthy and its best. Scripture is talking about ecosystems, right? One living thing wouldn't do well in this lifeless world without other living things. And it's this introduction to this idea that I want to hold on to, interdependence. Now, I just want to say before, I'm going to, we're going to spend some time in chapter one. You're going to wonder, if you are a normal human being who doesn't geek out on scripture like me, you're going to be like, is this going somewhere? I think it's going somewhere. So hold on, and maybe we'll get there. It might even be interesting. We'll see. But, uh, but, but hold on. So, it's this introduction to interdependence, so we'll see what happens as this ecosystem begins to grow and take on shape. So verse 7, So then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is the, 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 the key verse that brought us to this passage. And we know why man was created, initially in this story at least, was so that plants had someone to take care of it. In fact, uh, later on, God sends, uh, uh, says that at, places Adam in a garden, and he says, I want you to work for it. I want you to care for it, cultivate it. The word there it can also be translated to be a slave over. So it's almost like we were created you know, for the plant's benefit. It's not the whole story, but it's partly what's suggested here. But God forms this man from the dust uh, of the earth. Um, and so God creates earth and then plants, and then he forms man from the same ground that the plants come out. It's like he's planting and growing a human, but almost like a potter is forming in the clay. In fact, the, uh, the word here for man in the Hebrew is, um, is Adam. That's where we get Adam and Eve. It's Adam. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for dirt is Adama, very, very similar to Adam. And so this guy, that this, this person, this human that, uh, that God created, he names the human um, after dirt for the purpose of making sure that we know that this human, this dirt man, this earthling, is deeply connected to this world and shares a similar origin with plants. That's the idea. He's forming it from the dirt, the same place. Um, and so there's this relationship. Um, and so God places this human in this garden where the plants can live together, almost like, and, and the scripture writer probably didn't know this, but you know, like there's this interdependence, this ecosystem that's already starting. Um, they, the man receives the breath of life and breathes in what the plants produce and the plants use what they breathe out. So right from the beginning, you have these plants and these humans and this ecosystem, this interdependence on one another. This is the picture that we're getting in creation. And so God continues to create, and this ecosystem becomes more complicated. Skip to verse 18. The verses we're skipping are, they get placed in a garden, and you're told where the garden is. So verse 18, it says this. So the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, this uh, dirt man. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is really interesting. 
This ecosystem wasn't just built on interdependence, but it, 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 God is looking for companionship for this new creature that God created. There's this desire, this intent in creation that things be relational. That there's uh, not just, uh, I, I live off of you plants and, and you live off of me, but the sense that like I can be friends with something. And so part of God's ecosystem isn't just interdependence, but it's this community, this companionship. It should tell us something about God, shouldn't it? That God creates an ecosystem that's built around relationships. It tells us a lot about who God is. So God creates some more, verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground, same place, all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. How personal is that? Once again, it's focus on relationships, even with animals. He brings them there, and whatever a man called a living creature, that was his name. So this animal comes, he looks the animal in the eye, and he gives him a name. And another animal comes, he gives him a name. Another animal comes, gives it like in this, this intimate, personal connection with the animals of creation. So the man gives names to all the livestock and the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. And so just like Adam, they're, they're put together by the potter working in the clay. And the implication here is that the animals also then receive the breath of life. In fact, later in Scripture, in Genesis uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8, around the story of Noah's Ark, we learn that animals care, had the breath of life as well. That, so you have Adam shares the origin with the plants. They both come from the dirt. But then Adam shares this, this other thing with animals that's also unique. They both have the breath of life. They, they both share the, what it means to be alive, that God animated them. They were lifeless before, and God made them life, you know, brought them to life. And so he names them in this ecosystem built on relationships. Um, where he gets to know these animals, which is one way of saying something that I maybe you haven't thought about. You could be sure that at this point, Adam has no plans to eat any of the animals. It's just, you know, meat's not on the menu at this point. Sorry for you who love a good barbecue. It's not on the menu um, because animals, in this story of paradise, animals weren't created for consumption. They were created for companionship. We live in a world that has become all about consumption. All of our relationships are often defined by consumption, not just with animals, of course, but what we can get out of plants, what we can get out of the earth, what we can get out of other people's consumption. But the original tent, even with the animals and the plants, wasn't consumption as much as companionship. And so, um, and, and I would say that it's a picture of what God says the future kingdom is going to be. When you look at the prophets, I think Isaiah and even Zechariah talks about the future kingdom of God. He describes it as what? A lion laying with a lamb. The cow will feed next to the wolf, but they won't eat each other. They'll eat something else. This is one of the pictures of what the world will look like in the future kingdom. But as great as the, the animals are, none of them are quite what God had in mind for, for Adam. So he further complicates things, and he, he does this in verse 21 to 22. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. I think what's happening here is not so much that God says, well, animals aren't suitable companions, so I'm going to create marriage. That's, that's happening, but that's not the only thing that's happening what God is doing by making, taking Adam and making male and female is, is creating the possibility for procreation. And so what the, the implication here is that not only will they be together, but there'll be the possibility for family and down the road, the possibility for community. With this union, there would be this potential for, for, for even more humans 
that people could be in relationship. Like, bil- like at this point, what is it, billions of humans? Like so many humans are in the world. There's, there's really no logical reason for anyone to live their life alone. And I'm not talking about just in marriage. I'm saying none of us would need to be alone. We, we would have friends and aunts and husbands and daughters and sisters and brothers and mentors and disciples and neighbors and coworkers. Like there's so many possibilities for relationships. This is the, this is the picture we're given. So God creates earth. From earth comes plants. From earth comes Adam. Adam's formed like a potter. Adam's given the breath of life. God then forms animals. They receive the breath of life as well. Then you have Eve. And this is the world. um, And in this world, you get this idea that everything's interconnected. Everything's interdependent. And it's about paradise. It's companionship. And it's perfect. But it doesn't last long. And I wonder if maybe that's the part we can relate to the story the most. That moment when everything finally seems to get in balance, you know, and you finally got all these different pieces and they all finally work out, and it, but it doesn't last long. If you turn the page, if you have a page, and you go to chapter 3 of Genesis, uh, you can see what happens. I'm not going to read all of this, but I do want to share some of it. Um, you, you might know the, the basic story of Adam and Eve, and they eat an apple, but it wasn't an apple, but, you know, that's the story. Here's what happens. Before we do, up to this point, you've, you've got these characters. Um, so you've got a, a God, um, and, and, and Adam is in relationship in this ecosystem, in this relationship with these different characters. You have uh, Adam is in relationship with God. Um, God created him. He walks in the garden with, with, with God and, and with earth. Adam has this relationship with earth. He came out of the earth. It's part of his origin story. You have this relationship with plants. It would provide food, um, and the fruit of the trees would be good for them. You have this relationship. Adam has this relationship with animals. Um, he names them. I mean, talk about a personal relationship. And then Adam was created in God's image, and one of the things that means is that Adam was self-aware, that Adam knew that Adam was Adam, that Adam, like, we know ourselves, and so he has this relationship with himself, and finally, when Eve comes along, he has a relationship with others. So what I want to do now that we understand all of that, okay, is go to chapter 3 and see what happens to each one of these relationships, Adam and Eve, they're placed in this garden. They're told not to do something. They're told not to eat this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We won't get into what that means. Um, But they were convinced by a snake, if you know the story, and they eat it. They disobey. And this is the story where things start to fall apart. We we call this the fall. It's the first act of disobedience. It's where sin enters the world, and things aren't going to be the way they used to. One way to think of it is like this. God has created this beautiful, fragile ecosystem. So think of it like this. It's like you've set your table for a beautiful banquet. And you've got fine china, like the really fragile kind with like the tiny little cracks that your grandmother and then you got, and maybe it was from your great grandmother. You know the china I'm talking about? So you got the china, you set that out. You got the placemats, you got really nice silver, like people don't even have silver, but my mom does because her aunt did, we've got it. So you put the silver, like silver silverware out and you've got, uh, you know, the crystal glasses, you know, you, you dress it all up and it's beautiful. And you've got this great meal with all these really fancy dishes and stuff, but you don't want to share it by yourself. And, and so you invite your, your toddler to come in and share the meal with you. I have a, I have a, uh, going on three and, uh, I can completely relate. You know what happens, right? Like, dishes will get broken. It's not going to be a nice dinner. And so this, this fancy banquet, that's paradise. But God, when he created Adam and Eve, it was like, let's invite a toddler to the table. That's what happens. But here's the thing. I wouldn't want to have a meal without my son. 
even though I know it's going to make it into a whole kinds of mess that I'm going to have to deal with and even be stressful and maybe like God regret at one point. I don't know. But I don't want to have it without him. And so I'd rather have a banquet that falls short of paradise with my son than just simply have paradise without him. That is an oversimplification of answering the question of why bad, you know, why suffering, why sin, why God would allow all this. It's an oversimplification, but, but it can be helpful. That's what's happening. So God, because they've, they've come in and they've thrown the dishes on the floor, so to speak, God's going to explain to them and they're going to find out what's different now and what kind of mess this world has become a part of. So here's what happens. Adam and Eve, they throw the dishes on the floor. They won't eat the food. Um, they, they, they're not using the silverware correctly. And uh, they've messed up. And here's what happens. The first thing um, says this. This is chapter uh, three. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. They were naked, by the way. We skipped over that part. They were naked and they didn't, they didn't bother them. Their eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. As soon as sin entered the world, do you want to know the first thing that happens when sin enters the world? Shame. They're ashamed. Shame. This this sense of like, I messed up, I'm insecure, I'm self-aware in this really unhealthy sort of way, and I'm not good enough, and I need to cover myself up, and I'm like, all of this shame, and that's the first thing, friends, that's the first thing that happens in the creation story, and so here's the question. Of all of the relationships that Adam has, um, this ecosystem that God created, what's the first relationship that gets severed, that gets ruined, that gets hindered, that gets thwarted? The relationship... Was yourself. That's the first one. Now there's something wrong. My relationship with myself, there's something wrong there. I, I, I don't ha- I'm not at peace with myself anymore. That's the first thing. And that's just the beginning. Look what happens next. Um, verse uh, 8 through 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So shame, this sense of fear and insecurity and like, I'm not good enough and like, oh, I, I shouldn't be here and I'm, I'm an imposter. Like this shame actually makes them run from God, who is, by the way, the only person who can actually fix the problem. Friends, this is like, this is the life of a toddler, you know, like this happens all the time. And the shame runs from God. So First relationship that's severed is the relationship with self. The second one is their relationship with God. Sin separates their relationship with God. And that's not all. God asked them what they did, and here's what they say. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So shame, I hide from God, and then blame enters the world. How do you think this marriage is going? Now there's something, now there's like something in our relationships with other people that's not right. Now all of a sudden I'm casting blame and I'm pointing the finger and I'm comparing, my, I'm comparing myself. So now that relationship is severed as well. And that's not all. When God finds them, he does talk to them and he shares some bad news. He tells them that, that this world's going to be different now. 
And you knock the dishes on the floor, and the dinner party is not going to be the way that it was. And one thing that would be different is, is the way in which they work in the ground, the, the way in which they farm, and the way in which they build gardens, and the, the work that they accomplish, the original task. And he says in Genesis 3, 17 to 19, God tells them, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until the ground, until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So now, not only is my relationship with myself and with God and with other people has been strained, now he's saying that your relationship with the ground and with plants isn't what it should be. It's going to be a lot harder, and it's not going to be nearly as much fun. So now there's this problem in the world. Once again, we're asking the question, how in the world did we get here? And one of the things that's happening is, okay, now the dirt and the ground and the plants, they're, they're actually, they're, they're, they're becoming a problem. And so, but that's not all. So then God does one final thing. Adam and Eve are now too self-aware and too ashamed to be walking around naked. And the plants they sown from fig leaves aren't cutting it. And so verse 21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And so God kills an animal, and the animal, an animal that shares the breath of life, and uses its leather to create clothes. The first animal is killed, and nothing would be the same. Can you imagine, as the story unfolds, what that would be like for Adam, who just moments later is the idea that he had gone and named all these animals. Now one of them, one of them would be no more. This is the uh, ecosystem that we see. But every relationship Adam started with was strained. That, that's what sin does. Sin alienates. See, this is what, this is, we know this too, that sin separates us. And we often talk about in the church how sin separates us from God. But, but I want to suggest to you that sin does more than just separate us from God. It separates us from other people. It separates us from ourselves. And it separates us from all of creation. So this is just alienated us from God. And it, it, all of these relationships are not what they should be. It ruins the entire ecosystem. That's the power of sin in this world. It alienates us from God and others and ourselves and even creation. And this is where, now, here's the thing. Christians, a lot of Christians, uh, you know, it's pretty standard. What we talk about is how sin separates us from God. How many have heard this before? Right? You know, we've talked about this, how sin separates us from God. We'll even talk about and more, you know, like how sin separates us from other people. We'll open the Gospels, and most of what Jesus talked about is loving your enemies, forgiving people, you know what it means to love people, like how sin is, how to overcome the separation that sin causes in relationships. But I think as a church, and I'm saying church, um, really kind of the American church, I think we do a pretty poor job of talking about how sin separates us from ourselves, how sin ruins our own relationship with oneself. How Jesus even said, you love your neighbors as yourself, which implies how can you love your neighbors if you don't love yourself? We, do, we don't do that. We don't talk about that as well. But what we're really bad about talking about is the ways in which sin has ruined our relationship with the rest of creation. We don't talk about that. We don't want to talk about that. We like our plastic and our fossil fuels, you know. We don't want to talk about that. Life is comfortable. It's easier, and our world is set up to be consumers, not companions with creation. That's how our world's set up. 
So we have factories where animals are produced. And we don't want to talk about it. You know who is talking about it? People who don't even believe in God. People who have no belief in God or never, you know, don't study the scriptures. They're engaged in this rigorous, robust conversation around what in the world's going on in this creation. What's going on? In, they don't call it creation. They don't believe in God created. But they're like, what's going on in the world? And why are, like, what are we doing that's having a negative impact on the world? And how could we do it differently? And does that mean we don't use straws? And maybe we should. And the Christians are like, well, that doesn't matter because my relationship with God is right. And my relationship with other people is right. Am I, am I the only one? I have friends who I honestly believe, based on the conversations I have with them, they'll say, they probably wouldn't come out and say this, but this is where they're coming from, is that creation was, is basically our, God's gift to us. We can do whatever we want with it. It's not what I read in the scriptures. If anyone should be talking about what it means to have a right relationship with creation, I think we should. Absolutely think we should. In fact, it was Paul who, in Romans um, 8, 19, he says this about creation, and this breaks my heart. If you think about this, this breaks my heart. He says, creation is waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. In other words, creation, which is being subjected to frustration. That's what he says in this, later in this passage in Romans. It's being subjected to frustration. It's, it's, it's under attack. It's being consumed in unhealthy ways. And creation is just waiting. Boy, wouldn't it be great when humans start living like the children of God again? Wouldn't that be great? Creation, in this sort of like metaphorical way, is like groaning and waiting. Oh, I can't wait for the new creation because this is so exhausting trying to survive under this kind of care. That's why Paul says this in Colossians. He says, and through him, speaking of Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, Jesus is the savior of the world. And I mean for you, if you so choose, and for me, but for the world. In fact, Paul says, if you skip ahead in, in Romans 8 to verse 21, he says that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. This idea that, that Jesus came and died and rose again, not only to make us new, but that when, when we say Christ makes all things new, he's not just talking about all the things in your life. He's saying all of creation. Scripture is very clear. We don't have time to really jump in and talk about um, what creation care could look like. It's something that I think we're going to do a series on down the road. Um, uh, even just preaching this after our first service, you know, some of the conversation that was coming out, coming out of it and some of the questions, like, we'll spend some time. We're going to walk through, you know, uh, sometime in the next year or so, uh, uh, what it means to be engaged in creation care, what God's called us to as people, and what that means for today. But what I want to do today, um, before we go, is I want to invite you to stop and reflect. You basically have these four spheres of relationships in God's ecosystem. And all of them have become strained and put under pressure and um, are not what they should be. So I want you to spend some time and reflect and ask yourself, which of these have you neglected? Which of these relationships is maybe a little bit under tension or, or strain? Um, is it with God? Do you, do you need to wake up to the reality that you are someone who was created by God and that the very breath you have right now is a gift from God? If so, know that God loves you and God wants good things for you. Like 
God wants that relationship to be good and beautiful. And Jesus made the way for that. Maybe there's someone in your life. Maybe it's other people. Maybe there's someone that comes to your mind even right now that, that you either hurt or that hurt you. And you've been like, man, I really need to reach out to that person. And I haven't yet. Spend some time and wrestle with that. Maybe there's a relationship that's under strain and it's not what it could be. Think about that for a second and what God might have you do with it. And then maybe it's with yourself. Maybe you, you're crippled with shame or insecurity or fear. Maybe you just need God to come and heal that part of you. Or maybe it's with creation and the food that you eat or the stuff you buy, the things that we throw away, things that you can maybe do different to care for creation, to think about creation differently. I'm going to give you a couple moments to reflect. I'm going to invite the band to come up. They're going to get set for our closing song. I'm going to give you uh, just a few moments. We, we, we really um, like... Um, I'm not here to just tell you what to do. I'm, I want to create space. And we try to do this in worship as often as we can for you to spend time with God, to slow down. Um, I mean, we're talking about the breath of God to breathe a little and to think and to pray. So we're going to spend just a couple minutes for you to reflect. And then if you feel led, we'll have a prayer on the screen that's a prayer of confession relating to creation that I'll invite those who feel led to pray with. So let's just take a couple moments and pray. God, we ask that you come and search our hearts and see if there is any wicked way in us. Bring to our hearts and our minds those places in our lives where there is strain, where there is brokenness. But we ask that if there's anyone here who feels separated from you, that they might trust in the name of Jesus and that that, might, that relationship might be restored, that we might know you and that your Holy Spirit would come and comfort and even convict. But we ask for those in here who feel that there are people in their lives with relationships that not as they should be, that you would give them clarity, that you would help them see what it is that they should and shouldn't do, that you'd create doorways for reconciliation and forgiveness. Lord, I lift up especially those here who are struggling with their relationship with self, who are feel burdened with shame or feel, a disap as, uh, feel that they're a disappointment or feel like that they're not living up to who they should be or doing what they could be doing. And if, Lord, I just ask that you'd come and that you would help them see themselves as you see them as beloved child of God, filled with your spirit, enabled to do so many things in your name. Lord, finally, we lift up those who are struggling with what it means to be in relationship and companionship and care with all of creation. Open up doors for us to spend time in your creation and join the praise that is already happening amongst all the living things that you've created and brought into this world. I invite you to stand. And if you feel so led, um, I invite you to read these words on the screen with me. A prayer of confession. O God, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, you place us in your creation 
and you command us to care for it. Your works declare glory and splendor, and you call us to praise and reverence. We have created or destroyed earth's bounty, forgive us. Where we have taken beauty and majesty for granted, have mercy upon us. Where we have become estranged from the creatures with whom we share the breath of life, grant us your peace. Renew us with your spirit. Refresh us with the winds of your spirit and sustain us with the breath of life. In the name of Jesus Christ and for the sake of the new creation, we pray. Amen.